Hey, Peacenicks. This podcast you're about to hear is why I've been so absent over the past month or so. It took a lot of research, and it's such an important episode that I wanted to really capture the whole story. I read many books to research today's podcast, some like Fentanyl, Inc. by Ben Westoff and Drug Use for Grownups by Dr. Carl Hart, and I'll be reading from these books and others throughout. It was these books, along with the internet research and watching the HBO documentary Crime of the Century, which led me to listening to the audiobook Painkiller by Barry Meyer. These things, plus my own personal experience with opiate addiction, along with some of the recovered addicts and professionals I've talked with on the podcast, all these things I've woven together to tell the story and get it as close to reality as I possibly could. So thank you for listening. This is episode 18, Smoke in the Air, the Opioid Crisis. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs are menacing our society. Your thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the piece on drugs. On drugs. From Intoxication by Ronald K. Siegel Opium is as old as tobacco, as universally recognized as alcohol, and as rooted in tradition as the plant hallucinogens. And like all these sources of intoxication, the accidental and deliberate use of opium is widespread throughout the animal kingdom. Yet opium is unique in that the intoxication is almost always pleasurable. The drive to opium's pleasure is manifested in patterns of use and addiction found across time and species. Not surprisingly, opium is the most celebrated drug in literature. So after the podcast I did with Gretchen Bergman, who co-founded A New Path, which advocates for therapeutic rather than punitive drug policy, I decided my next smoke in the air would be about the opioid crisis. Because she gave me the statistic that 105 people die from drug overdose every day in this country. But as I was working on this opioid crisis podcast, I read an article that revealed that the latest CDC data shows that overdose deaths reached an all-time high in 2020. In 2020, more than 93,000 people died from drug overdose. That's an average of over 261 people every single day. Of the 93,331 overdose deaths, almost 70,000 involved opioids. Now, I'd like to highlight the word involved, because this means that some, if not a lot, of these cases involved other drugs as well, typically a benzo like Xanax. The actual number is about 30% of opioid-related deaths involved benzos. But opioids seem to be the constant, and specifically, the introduction of mass quantities of a strong synthetic opioid on the streets has coincided with the rise of deaths. It wasn't until after talking with Gretchen and deciding to do this podcast that I began to understand the complexities of the crisis and learned of the number of deaths. So this was a hard topic to try and cram into a single podcast, but I did my best. I'm going to do this special in segments. First, I want to talk about the opioid crisis or 
opioid epidemic as it's being called, are these apt words to describe our current predicament? How many people are addicted and how many people overdose every day in the United States? Why are they addicted? Why are overdoses happening? Is there a villain or is it more of a complex issue with societal issues playing a huge role? Or is it that and multiple villains? Basically, in the first segment, I'm going to discuss what's going on. Let's try and understand what the so-called opioid crisis actually is. Second, I would like to do a brief history of opioid use from its original cultivation in the Middle East to the opium wars of the 1800s to the medicinal and recreational use before prohibition in the war on drugs to what happened when it was outlawed and moved only into the realm of pain management and anything else was moved to the black market. Third, I want to talk about fentanyl, the super potent synthetic opiate previously mentioned. I want to clear up some some of the misinformation, explain fentanyl analogs and how they can be more dangerous and how the prohibition of opioids for addicts is the reason they even exist in the first place. And I want to explain that fentanyl has been used and is still being used safely in hospitals every day. Last, I want to talk about the answers. How do we get less people addicted to these drugs? How do we help them put their lives back together? How do we save the lives of those who are overdosing daily? Also, I want to discuss what other countries have done and how other countries are solving these problems. And I will be touching on other countries' handling of the crisis and everything that um, we'll kind of be discussing in the last part of what we do will kind of be, be briefly mentioned throughout the podcast as we move along. So let's dive into this episode, Smoke in the Air, The Opioid Crisis. Okay, so the opioid crisis, what is actually going on here? We will start with this phrase, opioid crisis. Is it a crisis? Well, almost 70,000 people died of overdose involving opioids in 2020 in the U.S., and we will have thousands more this year. So yes, it is a crisis. The problem I have with calling it an opioid crisis is that this is more anti-drug propaganda. It immediately puts all the blame on opioids. Yes, they are to blame for the suppression of the person's breath, and so they are the cause of these deaths, sometimes with an accomplice like Xanax or Valium, as these drugs also slow the breath. But are the drugs to blame? As Dr. Carl Hart said, opiates are not conscious, they have no motive. If they are so dangerous, then how do hospitals not have daily deaths from giving them to their patients? The answer is because they give their patients a regulated, measured dose. Why aren't more people dying from the prescription medicines that they use for pain management that they get from their pharmacy? Again, regulated doses. I was addicted for over two years to Vicodin and never came close to death because I was using a safe, regulated dose of a drug that I was familiar with. The most dangerous risk I had was liver damage from the Tylenol they mixed with hydrocodone. Why are heroin addicts not dying in places like Switzerland? Because in these places, heroin addicts can go to a doctor and get a regulated dose of the drug they use, in this case, heroin. So while it is opioids that are killing people in this country, 
it is hard to put the blame on them. Again, they are not sentient. They have no motive or nefarious intent. But they can be deadly, and people like to take them. People like the way that they make them feel. This puts fault on the drug and the addict. And is that how we want to look at this? Okay. But they're not deadly if the dose is properly measured and prescribed. And if people like to take them, then why aren't we allowing them to get a safe dose from a safe source like a pharmacist? The answer to this question is convoluted and will take us on many paths, as we will see. But first, let's talk about why people like to take them. We must understand that the opiate addict is not one type of personality, and not all who use opiates and even die from them are addicts. For some users, it's self-medication, just like an alcoholic drinking away their problems or a social drinker relieving the stresses of work and family. People use recreational drugs, especially opiates, to self-medicate for all types of things. Depression, bipolar, schizophrenia. Yes, many schizophrenics find heroin to be a more comforting treatment than prescribed antipsychotic medications. Opiate use is also common in people who have suffered childhood trauma and grief. They are also used by people who just want to wind down after a tough day at work, people who like to mix opiates and music at concerts or at home listening to their favorite records. So whatever these people's reasons for wanting to use these drugs, the fact is, adult individuals like them. They will seek them out wherever they can find them, and they will use them. It's no coincidence that abuse rates and overdose rates are much higher in economically devastated regions. The answer to getting people clean in these places would be to help them get back to work in a fulfilling job. The more stress in people's lives, the more likely they will seek out some sort of escape, and for a lot of people this means escaping with drugs. A great example of this was the story I told in previous podcasts about the water buffalo in Vietnam. They rarely ever ate the poppies that the Vietnamese farmers grew to make heroin, but when the U.S. started dropping bombs, they started consuming it regularly. They were seeking an escape from the anxiety of war. I think of my dog shaking in the corner when he hears thunder. Um, This seeking an escape was also happening with the soldiers. Heroin use was rampant for American soldiers in Vietnam. It was a very high-stress situation with bombs going off all around. So many soldiers would self-medicate with drugs, and heroin was a popular choice. And many of the soldiers became regular users with physical dependencies. I'm going to read from Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream. Out in Southeast Asia, using heroin was as common as chewing gum among U.S. soldiers, as Time magazine reported at the time. This wasn't just journalistic hyperbole. Some 20% of U.S. soldiers had become addicted to heroin there, according to a study published in the archives of general psychiatry later cited by many writers. This meant there were more heroin addicts serving in the U.S. Army than there were back home in the United States. The American military had cracked down hard on marijuana smoking among its troops, 
sending in pot-sniffing dogs, and staging mass arrests, and so huge numbers of men, unable to face that level of pressure without a relaxant, had transferred to smack, which sniffer dogs can't snuffle out. Senator Robert Steele of Connecticut came home from the jungles ashen-faced to explain, the soldiers going to South Vietnam today run a far greater risk of becoming a heroin addict than a combat casualty. Many people in the United States were understandably terrified. The war was going to end sooner or later, and at that point, the streets of America were going to swell with an unprecedented number of junkies. They believed the pharmaceutical theory of addiction. So so this was the only outcome that made any sense. Their brains and bodies were being hijacked by the drug. So as Senator Harold Hughes of Iowa warned, Within a matter of months in our large cities, the Capone era of the 20s may look like a Sunday school picnic by comparison. The war ended, the addicts came home, and something nobody expected took place. The study in the archives of general psychiatry and the experiences people could see all across the country show that 95% of them within a year simply stopped. The addicts who received drug treatment and rehab were no more likely to stop than those who received no treatment at all. A tiny number of vets did carry on shooting up. They turned out either to have had unstable childhoods or to have been addicts before they went. So basically what we've learned is there is a distinct difference in the occasional user and the addict. While someone who uses for pleasure or curiosity or socially will rarely develop a problem, the person who uses to escape reality is more likely to become addicted. That is, until the reality that they are trying to escape is no longer present. If the, if the reality is war, then when the war ends, the soldier will quit using. If the reality is childhood trauma, something which has already ended but the person can't escape because of reliving the, the traumatic memory, a condition that also affects some soldiers, a condition known as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, then the remedy for the addiction isn't so clear. But most psychologists today will agree that they need to heal before they will stop abusing their drug of choice. Therefore, they give addicts with opiate addictions drugs like methadone, because methadone will curb the withdrawals, and this makes therapy possible. Because an addict going through withdrawal will not be responsive to therapy. However, a new mode of thinking is emerging. Drugs like methadone will curb withdrawals, but they do not provide the user with the high that they prefer, the high that heroin, for instance, gives them. And they seek that high as a reprieve from whatever mental demon that they're wrestling. So while methadone curbs the withdrawal, allow, it allows them to sit through therapy, the addict is still ruminating about the possibility of escape. The new mode of thinking that's emerging especially in places like Switzerland, which actually has programs for it, is what if we gave the addict the drug that they actually craved? Instead of methadone, give the heroin addict heroin. Then they won't be able to only tolerate therapy, they'll actually enjoy it. In Switzerland, where they are, they're actually doing this, they have had a huge success rate of addiction recovery. This is important. In Switzerland, only 15% of users are still using after three years of being in the program. 
In the U.S., only 15% stop using. So why not? Why don't we give our heroin addicts, people that are addicted to heroin here, a safe, regulated supply? Why not follow Switzerland's lead? There are a few reasons for this. One is the, the mass of anti-drug propaganda that began flooding our culture through TV commercials, school initiatives, and even dialogue and sitcoms. The drug war propaganda machine started churning under Nixon, and then every president since Reagan has added more torque and fed it more fuel. So many Americans were brainwashed by these incessant waves of misinformation that the truth got swept away in the undertow. This is why people fight the legalization of cannabis. I remember all the anti-medicinal marijuana people in Florida when it was on the ballot, and they were saying things like, I don't want it to be any easier for my kids to get their hands on that stuff. Um, They didn't realize that it's already as easy as can be for their children to get. And the person selling it may have other upsells too, like cocaine or pills. These people are are brainwashed by the government. They don't realize that the biggest danger of their kids smoking pot is the chance that they might get arrested. So propaganda is one reason why it's near impossible to even talk about legalizing drugs like heroin, because it's political suicide for any candidate to even suggest. Another huge reason is morality, and this is rooted in our puritanical foundation. This idea we shouldn't feel the need to experience other modes of thinking. All we need is Jesus. Prohibition is deeply rooted in the evangelical nature of this country. The first laws of prohibition that were passed were passed in the late 1800s to ban peyote. The reasons they wanted to ban peyote is that the Christian missionaries were having trouble converting the natives to Christianity, and they blamed the drugs. The Christian sacrament, the Eucharist, a a cracker and a sip of wine, was purely symbolic in its revealing divinity. But the native sacrament actually showed you visions and physically altered your consciousness, and so the Christian sacrament was no match. Instead of them questioning their own faith and trying to experience the native spiritual world, they decided to outlaw the native sacrament. Because to a Christian, their divinity is supreme, and they will use force to keep it that way. And this goes back even further when the Spanish conquistadors arrived in Mexico and had the problems of being unable to convert the natives to Christianity because of the inferior sacrament. And so they made it their mission to ban the use of peyote and psychedelic mushrooms. I mean, this story to me really illuminates the problems of Christianity. I'm not saying if you're a Christian that um, I have a problem with you having faith and finding spirituality through that. But... um. There, there are problems with the um, organized religion of Christianity. It's the missionaries banned the natives from using a plant that they'd used for centuries, and it wasn't even it wasn't even their country. But because of the nature of Christianity, they believe that they that they're spreading the word of the one true God. And just because the native doesn't believe, doesn't mean that that they won't burn in hell. And so the Christian actually believes that they are doing the native a favor. And this is what makes it such a dangerous religion. This reminds me of a quote by uh, by C.S. Lewis. Um, Let's see if I find it right here. Uh, It said, Of all tyrannies, 
a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims, may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. You know, this also um, it relates to the war on drugs, the way that our government's telling us what we can put in our own body, it's for our own good. So they don't lose sleep at night for that. But um, so this Christian morality that believes it knows what's best for everyone, even those outside the faith, is, is one very scary reason that our country has resisted drug legalization. But also, it's the capitalist morality as well. A lot of these drug rehabilitation programs call for government funding. Our country is built on two major platforms. One, in God we trust. Two, we pick ourselves up by our own bootstrap. These ideals are almost across the board on the conservative right, and they are still ingrained in a lot, a lot of people on the left, though somewhat less. So this idea that we should use taxpayer money to help an addict is a hard one for Americans to swallow. Now, why should I pay for some godless loser who wants to get high more than he wants to work? That kind of mentality. This kind of thinking is it's rampant on the right, though it does cross partisan lines. It was also a huge concern in Switzerland, where there is a conservative majority. And they were not thrilled about using taxpayer money to supply free heroin to heroin addicts. But after the programs went into effect, even the right-wing politicians came around and now support it because the results, the results that they are seeing are so phenomenal and they realized the programs were actually saving them money because crime and arrest went so far down. I'm going to read another excerpt from Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream. After the clinics opened, the people of Switzerland started to notice something. The parks and railway stations that were filled with addicts emptied. Today, children play there once again. The streets became safer. The people on heroin prescriptions carry out 55% fewer vehicle thefts and 80% fewer muggings and burglaries. This fall in crime was almost immediate, the most detailed academic study found. The HIV epidemic among drug users stopped. In 1985, some 68% of new HIV infections in Switzerland were caused by injection drug use. But by 2009, it was down to approximately 5%. So, if we look at Switzerland, we can see that the capitalist argument isn't a strong one. Less taxpayer money will be used on the drug problem if we legalize and regulate drugs. The Christian morality argument is ridiculous because we don't live in a theocracy, so religion should play no part in our legal system. The propaganda that has sown so much misinformation about drug use will be hard to overcome, but it's already happening. The biggest change has been the legalization of medical cannabis. So many elderly people with chronic illness have gotten their medical cards because they actually stood to benefit from its medicinal effects. And these people are of the generation that was hardest hit by the anti-drug propaganda. 
because they started being hit with it in the 60s with Nixon and then again when they had children to worry about under Reagan. They viewed cannabis as a dangerous scourge on society and now they're eating it and smoking it and they realize that without a doubt they'd been lied to. So we are starting to see a shift in the anti-drug thinking that's in our culture. But there is another reason why the U.S. isn't legalizing and regulating. It's perhaps the most nefarious and probably the biggest hurdle we'll have to jump. The drug war machine, or drug war industrial complex. This includes huge industries with a lot of lobbying power. The private prisons, local law enforcement, law firms, DAs, the DEA, Anyone who stands to lose a lot of money when drugs become legal. So this list would even include the mafia and drug cartels. But I want to focus on law enforcement. This group is the scariest as they've been militarized in the last few decades, receiving massive amounts of military-grade equipment to use on civilians. They get a lot of equipment under the guise of protection against mass shootings and hostage situations but almost all this power gets directed at fighting the drug war. They use SWAT teams to kick in doors in poor neighborhoods, sometimes finding no drugs at all, or making making an arrest for like a small amount of cocaine, sometimes no more than a gram. Local police have received tactical shotguns and assault rifles, grenade launchers, and even helicopters and tanks. I want to read from Michelle Alexander's brilliant book, the new Jim Crow. I think she explains this horrible reality better than anyone. At the time the drug war was declared, illegal drug use and abuse was not a pressing concern in most communities. The announcement of a war on drugs was therefore met with some confusion and resistance among law enforcement, as well as among some conservative commentators. The federalization of drug crime violated the conservative tenet of states' rights and local control, as street crime was typically the responsibility of local law enforcement. Many state and local law enforcement officials were less than pleased with the attempt by the federal government to assert itself in local crime fighting, viewing the new drug war as an unwelcome distraction. Participation in the drug war required a diversion of resources away from more serious crimes, such as murder, rape, grand theft, and violent assault, all of which were of far greater concern to most communities than illegal drug use. The resistance within law enforcement to the drug war created something of a dilemma for the Reagan administration. In order for the war to actually work, that is, in order for it to succeed in achieving its political goals, it was necessary to build a consensus among state and local law enforcement agencies that the drug war should be a top priority in their hometowns. The solution? Cash. Huge cash grants were made to those law enforcement agencies that were willing to make drug law enforcement a top priority. The new system of control is traceable to a significant degree to a massive bribe offered to state and local law enforcement by the federal government. So clearly... Law enforcement has a reason to continue fighting the drug war and that they receive all kinds of these wonderful, deadly toys. This is why I support the defund the police movement. 
I just think they should have called it defund the drug war. It essentially means the same thing. Okay, so another excerpt. Uh, We're going to get back to Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. The transformation from community policing to military policing began in 1981 when President Reagan persuaded Congress to pass the Military Cooperation with Law Enforcement Act, which encouraged the military to give local, state, and federal police access to military bases, intelligence, research, weaponry, and other equipment for drug interdiction. This legislation carved a huge exception to the Posse Comitatus Act, the Civil War era law prohibiting the use of the military for civilian policing. It was followed by Reagan's National Security Decision Directive, which declared drugs a threat to U.S. national security and provided for yet more cooperation between local, state, and federal law enforcement. In the years that followed, Presidents George Bush and Bill Clinton enthusiastically embraced the drug war and increased the transfer of military equipment, technology, and training to local law enforcement, contingent, of course, on the willingness of agencies to prioritize drug law enforcement and concentrate resources on arrests for illegal drugs. In fact, the Times reported that police departments had an extraordinary incentive to use their new equipment for drug enforcement. The extra federal funding the local police departments received was tied to anti-drug policing. The size of the disbursements was linked to the number of city or county drug arrests. Each arrest, in theory, would net a given city or county about $153 in state and federal funding. Non-drug-related policing brought no federal dollars, even for violent crime. As a result, when Jackson County, Wisconsin, quadrupled its drug arrests between 1999 and 2000, the country's federal subsidy quadrupled too. As if the free military equipment, training, and cash grants were not enough, the Reagan administration provided law enforcement with yet another financial incentive to devote extraordinary resources to drug law enforcement rather than more serious crimes. State and local law enforcement agencies were granted the authority to keep, for their own use, the vast majority of cash and assets they seize when waging the drug war. This dramatic change in policy gave state and local police an enormous stake in the war on drugs, not in its success, but in its perpetual existence. Law enforcement gained a pecuniary interest not only in the forfeited property, but in the profitability of the drug market itself. Let that sink in. Not only is law enforcement now more concerned with fighting the drug war than stopping violent crimes like rape and child molestation, but they are now banking on never winning the drug war. They actually need it to continue indefinitely so they can keep profiting, seizing people's assets, houses. I was just reading in Michael Pollan's book, um, is called This Is Your Mind on Plants, and he's worried that the government could seize his house because he was writing an article about poppies, and he was growing some in his garden, and they're a decorative flower, and then he found out that because he's aware of their 
um, narcotics that, that he's growing and he's writing about them from the nar- narcotic perspective, even though he was doing it for a piece and he did wanted to try making a tea out of it. He found out that he, he technically was manufacturing drugs and they could seize his house and that becomes their property. They can sell it and do what they want with the money. So I want to read something on the subject from Michael Pollan's book, This Is Your Mind on Plants. Under President Clinton, the government was prosecuting the drug war with a vehemence never before seen in America. The year I planted my poppies, more than a million Americans were arrested for drug crimes. The penalties for many of those crimes had become draconian under Clinton's 1994 crime bill, which introduced new three-strike sentencing provisions and led to mandatory minimum sentences for many non-violent drug offenses. By the mid-1990s, a series of Supreme Court decisions in drug cases had handed the government a raft of new powers that had significantly eroded our civil liberties. The government also won new powers to confiscate property, houses, cars, land, involved in drug crimes even when no individual has been convicted or even charged. Were these erosions of our liberties a casualty of the drug war? or its objective? It's a fair question. President Clinton didn't start the drug war. That distinction belongs to Richard Nixon, who we now know viewed drug enforcement not as a matter of public health or safety, but as a political tool to wield against his enemies. In an April 2016 article in Harper's Magazine, Legalize It All, Dan Baum recounted an interview that he conducted with John Elrickman, in 1994, two years before my misadventures in the garden. Elrickman, you will recall, was President Nixon's domestic policy advisor. He served time in federal prison for his role in Watergate. Baum came to talk to Elrickman about the drug war, of which he was a key architect. You want to know what this was really all about, Elrickman began, startling the journalist with both his candor and his cynicism. Elrickman explained that the Nixon White House had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Sickening. So when you think about the drug war in this context, it becomes something more frightful entirely. The idea that our government has no interest in banning drugs for our protection and never did. This means that We could show all the data about legalizing, how it could save lives, and that prohibition doesn't work, and our argument will fall on deaf ears. Because for the government, it is possible that prohibition is working. It is working exactly as they needed it to. The problem American law enforcement and politicians face is that that pesky document called the Constitution. Through declaring drugs a national emergency, They have found a way around our constitutional rights. 
They can't arrest people for protesting the war or protesting equal rights, but they can arrest them for drugs. The Fourth Amendment guarantees us the right not to be searched by the government without cause. The loophole here? Drug-sniffing dogs or planes that fly over houses looking for heat. Ending the drug war and legalizing and regulating all drugs is going to be a hard sell when the people in charge, that is, the people in the position to make these changes, would be losing a lot of their power in the process. So, now I've laid out the reasons legalizing drugs in the U.S. will be a hard thing to accomplish. Anti-drug propaganda, Christian morality, capitalist mentality, and the drug war industrial complex. So, let's jump back to the opioid crisis. So, as we begin to understand why people become addicted and the best ways to help them get off drugs and heal, and we begin to see the reasons why we're not doing these things, we begin to put the crisis into perspective. And one last angle to view the opioid epidemic is through the lens of alcohol prohibition. Under alcohol prohibition, when underground brewers made moonshine, sometimes they messed it up. People bought alcohol in the black market. Uh, They didn't know what they were getting or exactly how strong it was. Some people drank poisonous amounts of ethanol and went permanently blind. Hence the phrase, blind drunk. But now you can buy liquor at the store and get a drink at a bar, and you don't have to worry about going blind because it's regulated. I'm going to read something from Dr. Carl Hart's book, Drug Use for Grown-Ups. In the late 19th century, alcohol and drinkers were the targets in the United States. It was asserted that the drug takes the kind, loving husband and father, smothers every spark of love, in his bosom and transforms him into a heartless wretch and makes him steal the shoes from his starving babe's feet to find the price for a glass of liquor. It takes your sweet, innocent daughter, robs her of her virtue, and transforms her into a brazen, wanton harlot. These negative narratives became so plentiful that Congress was persuaded to amend the Constitution, banning the manufacturer sale, or transportation of alcoholic beverages. The 18th Amendment took effect on January 17, 1920. It would take almost a decade and a half, and the belief that alcohol tax revenue would lower income taxes before reason prevailed. On December 5, 1933, the 21st Amendment repealed the 18th Amendment, making it the only one ever to be repealed. Today, 100 years later, nearly identical bankrupt arguments are hawked to support bans on other drugs in several countries, the United States included. Judging from the dominant response to the current North American opioid situation, increased restrictions placed on the legal availability of these drugs, little has been learned from the alcohol prohibition experience. As had occurred during the Prohibition era, loads of people still consume so-called banned drugs, including opioids, cocaine, and psychedelics. Many of these people are forced to obtain their drugs of choice from illicit, unregulated markets where there aren't any quality controls. Thus, just as during Prohibition, 
Thousands of people have died from ingesting drugs contaminated with poisons, impurities, and other unknown substances. Alcohol tainted with large amounts of methanol killed thousands of drinkers and left many others blind during Prohibition. As Deborah Bloom masterfully explains in her authoritative work, The Poisoner's Handbook, the U.S. government callously caused many of these deaths. Even before Prohibition, as early as 1906, federal officials required producers of industrial alcohol used in antiseptics, medicines, and solvents to add methanol and other chemicals to their batches so their products would be undrinkable. This policy was implemented to deal with manufacturers who sought to avoid paying taxes on potable alcohol. The Prohibition era brought with it sophisticated traffickers who obtained industrial alcohol, redistilled it to be quaffable, and sold it to the public and speakeasies. Government authorities were not pleased. Alcohol had been banned, but people continued to imbibe. By the mid-1920s, the feds were fed up. They ordered industrial alcohol makers to add even more methanol, up to 10%, to their products, which proved to be particularly lethal. Illicit dealers were caught off guard, and redistilling industrial alcohol required much more effort. Most individuals, certainly most drinkers, were unaware of these developments. People continued to drink, and the alcohol poisoning death toll continued to climb. By the time Prohibition ended, hundreds of thousands of people had been maimed or killed due to drinking tainted alcohol. An estimated 10,000 of these individuals died as a result of the government alcohol poisoning program. Neither accumulating deaths nor public outcry compelled the government to change its deadly alcohol poisoning policy. This war on alcohol tactic remained in effect until Prohibition was repealed. Thinking about these events, I can't help but see the hypocrisy of our current approach that allows the government to to prosecute as a murderer anyone who provided the drug to a fatal overdose victim. The fact of the matter is that many dealers, especially the low-level ones, don't know the complete composition of the substances they sell. It is true that some drugs sold by these individuals may contain harmful adulterants. But unlike prohibition, authorities sorry, unlike prohibition authorities, their intent certainly isn't to kill or harm consumers. If our current government or any government were genuinely concerned about the health and safety of drug users, it would ensure that free anonymous drug safety testing services were widely available. This practical approach informs users of the contents of their substances and decreases the likelihood of people ingesting fatal amounts of unknown substances. The parallels between the government-mandated methanol poisoning policy and the current practice of combining an opioid with acetaminophen in a single pill are frightening. Several pharmaceutical companies offer such FDA-approved products. The pain medicine Percocet, for example, contains a low dose of the opioid oxycodone and a much larger amount of acetaminophen. It is claimed that such formulations provide complementary, more effective pain relief than does the opioid alone. Even if this is true, which I do not concede, the risk-to-benefit ratio is simply not favorable when one considers the potential lethality and toxicity of acetaminophen. Acetaminophen-induced liver toxicity is the most common cause of acute liver failure, which can be fatal.
approximately 6 to 10 grams of acetaminophen taken for two consecutive days is enough to cause liver damage. As I explained at the beginning of this section, the reason people don't die from opiates in hospitals and the reason I didn't overdose on Vicodin is because of regulated doses. Though I may have been subjected to dangerous amounts of acetaminophen, as Dr. Carl Hart just explained, I mean, it really is infuriating. If it is better to treat pain with an opioid like hydrocodone and acetaminophen, then why not prescribe the opioid and acetaminophen as two separate drugs? Why put them in the same pill? And acetaminophen, Tylenol, is available over the counter. I can definitely see parallels with this and what the government was doing with methanol. Anyway, back to the unre- or back to the regulated dose being safer argument. Acetaminophen aside, the Vicodin I was taking was relatively safe because I was taking a regulated dose. The reason Switzerland's heroin addicts aren't dying is because they're receiving regulated doses. The variable in overdose deaths is not where and where not the opioids are. The variable is where they are properly regulated and where the addict can get a safe dose and where they are not safely available to the addict. So I think we should rename the opioid crisis the opioid regulation crisis because it is a crisis of an unregulated black market that is selling lethal fentanyl that is almost 100% of the opioid deaths we had in the United States last year. One of those deaths was a friend of mine, Brian. He was a cook at one of the restaurants I played at, and I got to know him, and you know we hung out. Um, when I first met him, he was getting drunk at the bar that I was playing at, and he was upset over the death of his girlfriend. She had just died of a drug overdose. As I got to know him, I learned what a great person he was, always smiling. He made everyone around him feel good, just a really good dude with good vibes, and um, and he was not an addict or even a drug abuser. He and I would hang out occasionally, smoke a little weed, have a few beers. Sometimes we might do a little cocaine, but mostly just have a few drinks, smoke a little weed, chill out. But in 2020, it was just after the shutdown. We were just getting back to work. And a lot of people were still out of work. I saw a Facebook post from a mutual friend saying how great Brian was and how he'd be missed. And, you know, thoughts and prayers for his family and all that. And that's how I learned of his death. It broke my heart. Brian had done some cocaine that contained fentanyl. And now he is one of the 93,000 dead from overdose. This is a regulation crisis. His death was preventable. I had to decide on the title of this podcast, calling it Smoke in the Air, the Opioid Crisis, or the Opioid Regulation Crisis. I went with the phrase that people were familiar with. I wanted to make sure they knew this podcast was about what the media calls the opioid crisis. But it is a regulation crisis. If these drugs were regulated and sold legally, Brian would still be alive. How many others would still be alive? Two of my close childhood friends, Drew and Justin, both dead from opiate overdose. And what about the famous people we've lost? People we all knew and loved collectively as a part of our culture. People who are no longer with us because of drug overdoses that would not have happened if they were able to get the drug that they wanted from a safe and regulated source. A doctor. A regulated dose. In the last 10 years, 
And I apologize if an artist you love didn't make this list. Not every famous person that overdosed and died is here. I picked the few that I knew. Also, I don't consider anyone on this list more important than the people you might have known personally who have passed, but I thought this might help to put the opioid regulation into perspective. 2013, Chris Kelly, more popularly known as Chris Cross. 2014, Philip Seymour Hoffman. 2015, Scott Weiland. 2016, Prince accidental fentanyl overdose 2017 Tom Petty and Lil Peep both accidental fentanyl overdoses 2018 Mac Miller accidental fentanyl overdose 2020 Justin Towns Earl accidental fentanyl overdose 2021 Michael K. Williams Accidental overdose involving fentanyl. He was the great actor who played Omar on one of my favorite shows and one of the few drug shows I think showed a realistic version of the negative side of the drug war, HBO's The Wire. And Prince and Tom Petty were actually trying to manage their pain. They were older men still touring like they were in their 20s. Prince would still do splits and dance all over the stage. They needed pain medicine, but it's really hard to get a doctor to prescribe pain medicine even when it's actually needed for pain because the doctors could get in trouble because people might use their pain medication to get high. So what if they do? What if they use it to get high and enjoy the high? What do we care? I am going to read something from Ben Westoff's book, Fentanyl, Inc., Making it harder for people to get pain medication legally will most likely drive many to seek relief from far more dangerous and super potent synthetic opioids, wrote Richard A. Friedman, director of the Psychopharmacology Clinic at New York's Weill Cornell Medical College. A flurry of new regulations designed to lower patients' dependence on opioids are nonetheless going into effect. In Colorado, some doctors require their patients to take special classes before they can receive their medication. The classes suggest a variety of alternatives for battling chronic pain, including yoga, acupuncture, and dietary supplements. However well-intentioned, such requirements have caused some pain patients to feel as if they were being reprimanded or worse. I am uncomfortable with this approach because it feels like my care is being undermined and my condition discounted said a Fort Collins, Colorado patient named Shelley Neth, who suffers from conditions including osteoarthritis and was told by her doctor that she would have to attend classes to continue receiving her Vicodin. Now I'm considered a person on opioids, she added. The punishment for the overdose epidemic is being exacted on chronic pain patients. So instead of using prescribed pain medication... Prince and Tom Petty turned to an illegally obtained opiate pill they thought was something like Percocet, but turned out to be fentanyl, and now they both are dead. This is what the opioid regulation crisis looks like. And many, if not all of you listening, have someone you knew personally to add to that list. I've given many reasons why we don't fix the problem by legalizing and regulating. 
as I said, it's because the propaganda of the drug war and Christian morality. And also there's another reason. Opioids have become the scapegoat. It's their fault. We don't call it an opioid regulation crisis. We call it the opioid crisis. This tells everyone where to place the blame. With the blame entirely placed on opioids, then the solution will never be making the drugs more available for addicts. It will only be to get stricter and tougher in the fight to ban them. And what does this mean? It means people will continue buying their drugs on the street, many of which contain fentanyl, and people will continue to die. Also, putting the blame entirely on opioids means more aggressive law enforcement, more funding for drug enforcement leading to more seizures of drugs. The most common opiate seized is heroin. While heroin can be lethal, a heroin addict knows his dosage and if the heroin isn't cut with fentanyl, it's relatively safe. But when the DEA seizes 100 kilos of heroin at the border, what do the dealers do to keep making money? They cut the heroin that they have, that they have left, with a benign powder, and so the heroin gets weaker. But they have to stretch out what they have left. A lot of that weaker heroin then gets fentanyl added to it to give it some of its strength back. This is when heroin addicts overdose and die. They buy what they think is their usual bag of heroin, not knowing that it was cut with fentanyl and that their dealer put in way too much because he's not a trained pharmacist and the addict's typical dose kills them. Other addicts will turn to buying fentanyl straight up when they can't get heroin. So the heroin seizures actually cause more addicts to overdose on fentanyl. And fentanyl is so much stronger than heroin that it's shipped in such smaller packages. So while the DEA is seizing the safer heroin, the more deadly fentanyl is going right past them. It's even possible the cartels will do away with heroin completely and move to selling only fentanyl. I'm going to read again from Fentanyl Inc. Mike Vigil predicts that the Mexican cartels will eventually do away with heroin entirely. They take a lot of risk of their opium poppy fields being eradicated, he said. But with fentanyl, it's a huge profit-making drug with much less risk. So that's it for part one. What is the opioid crisis? It is an opioid regulation crisis that has led to the deaths of thousands and thousands of people. These people are our friends, our family, our artists and entertainers. They are our fellow Americans. So now let's see how we got here with this regulation crisis. Let's start with a brief history of the milk of the poppy. I'm not going to focus too much on early history because... While it's extremely fascinating, it isn't super relevant to our current opioid regulation crisis, though it does illuminate our torrid relationship with the plant. Opium comes from the poppy, Papaver somniferum. Poppies are big, beautiful flowers that grow naturally all over the world. They come in many colors, but they're most often depicted as red with black centers, which are the seed pods and where the opium is. The myth is that opium-containing poppies only grow in Asia and are very hard to grow, and you would need acres to cultivate even a small amount of heroin. And getting opium from them is an arduous task that would take a professional. 
As DEA agent Bill Maloney once said, I don't even think someone with a PhD could do it. None of this is true. These were lies told by the DEA and then printed magazines across the country to keep people ignorant of how easy it was to get high from a common garden flower. Opium-containing poppies grow wild all over the country and are planted in gardens everywhere, though they are technically illegal to grow. It kind of depends on who's growing. Your grandma would be fine. I might have the DA kick in my door if I grew them. Also, they're not hard to grow, and making use of its opium is extremely easy. You can dry the seed pods and crush them up and brew tea with them. It's that simple. Poppies contain many alkaloids. The two best known are morphine and codeine. Morphine is what heroin and oxycontin are derived from. Basically, morphine is a molecule almost structurally identical to neurotransmitters called endorphins, which our body uses to block pain signals. So, why do these opiates exist in poppies? Uh, what's the evolutionary benefit? You know, what evolutionary benefit did it provide for their survival? I'll let Michael Pollan explain it as I read from his book, This Is Your Mind on Plants. He just got done harvesting a small crop of poppies from his garden. As I gathered up the poppy stalks, I reflected on the season's unusual harvest. Pride is a common enough emotion among gardeners at this time of year. That and a continuing amazement at what it is possible to create, virtually out of nothing in one's garden. I still marvel each summer at the achievement of a bourbon rose or even a beefsteak tomato. How the gardener can cause nature to yield up something so specifically attractive to the human eye or nose or taste bud. So it was with these astonishing poppies. How can it be that such an inconsequential speck of seed could yield a fruit in my garden with the power to lift pain, alter consciousness, make sadness go away? We have the scientist's explanation. The alkaloids in opium consist of complex molecules nearly identical to the molecules that our brain produce to cope with pain and reward itself with pleasure. Though it seems to me that this is one of those scientific explanations that only compounds the mystery it purports to solve. For what are the odds that a molecule produced by a flower out in the world would turn out to hold the precise key required to unlock the physiological mechanism governing the economy of pleasure and pain in my brain. There is something miraculous about such a correspondence between nature and mind, though it too must have an explanation. It might be the result of sheer molecular accident, but it seems more likely that it is the result of a little of that and then a whole lot of coevolution. One theory holds that Papaver somniferum is a flower whose evolution has been directly influenced by the pleasure and relief from pain. It happened to give a certain primate with a gift for horticulture an experiment. The flowers that gave people the most pleasure were the ones that produced the most offspring. It's not all that different from the case of the bourbon rose or the beefsteak tomato, two other plants whose evolution has been guided by the hand of human interest. Fascinating how a plant could evolve in a way that manipulated humans into cultivating it, thus spreading its seeds all over the globe. 
The earliest archaeological evidence of using opium was around 5000 BC. It was used by the ancient Greeks who birthed Western culture, and it was used across the Roman Empire for its pain-relieving properties, allowing ancient surgeons to operate. And yes, opium was used recreationally, and drug abuse and addiction and overdose all happened in ancient times as well. There has been an international drug trade as far back as 1000 BC. The two dominant drugs in the ancient world of the Mediterranean, cannabis and opium. Marcus Aurelius, who was the emperor of Rome in the 2nd century, was a regular opium user. Now, most of the sources online said that he was an opium addict, but this is how our culture chooses to to describe anyone who uses regularly. I'd probably argue that with his success, he wasn't an addict any more than a successful politician today who drinks is an alcoholic. Now, I'm not a Roman historian, so I might be way off on that. I don't know a lot about Marcus Aurelius. But my point is, is that when I looked it up, it's just he would, they say referred to him as an addict. So let's fast forward to more recent history, uh, the Opium Wars. The first Opium War was fought from 1839 to 1842 between China and Great Britain. British merchants were selling opium to the Chinese. China outlawed the trade and began seizing opium from the British merchants and threatened the death penalty for future offenders. The British didn't like that. They said it violated free trade and they sent their navy to China's coast and went to war. At the time, China wasn't much of a match. They were defeated and in return, Great Britain gained territory in China and was open to continue trading opium. Can you imagine... That would be like the DEA seizing heroin at the border and threatening to execute drug lords. Then, in response, Mexico declaring war on the U.S., winning, gaining Texas, then legally being allowed to sell us heroin. The Second Opium War was Great Britain and France together fighting the Qing Dynasty of China. This war lasted from 1856 to 1860. China had the same problems. They didn't want their people addicted to opium, so they tried again to ban it. This time it was France and Great Britain. They went to war, and again the Qing dynasty was defeated. What a powerful plant. International wars have been fought over it, and they're still being fought today. Now, my perspective on this and that I always pull for an underdog, but also I pull for what I believe to be right. I believe China was in the right in that they should decide for themselves what's right for them. But they were banning drugs, threatening death to drug traffickers, waging war on drugs, just like America today, the one thing this podcast is fighting to end. But 19th century China, they didn't know how to handle the addiction problem you know, they, they should have negotiated with the opium merchants so that the merchants would sell to the Chinese government exclusively and or to license opium pharmacies that they could tax. They should have regulated the trade inside their borders. So now let's skip ahead to the U.S. and how opium and its chemical derivatives went from over-the-counter medicines to a crisis where 70,000 people died from their use in a single year. According to journalist Johan Hari, In this country, it started with a scream, hence the title of his book, Chasing the Scream. In 1904, a young boy was visiting a neighbor in Pennsylvania when he heard a woman scream. 
a grown woman howling in agony. Her husband ran down the stairs and instructed the boy to go get a package from the pharmacy. The boy raced to the store and picked up the drugs. As soon as he returned and handed them to the woman, she stopped screaming. She was an opiate addict. This experience haunted the boy all his life. He looked at addicts as shameful weaklings. That boy's name was Harry Anslinger. He took over the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1930. The Bureau was a tiny agency on the brink of being abolished. It had been the Department of Prohibition, but alcohol prohibition had ended. Harry began his new crusade, and it started with banning drugs like cannabis and opiates. He got laws passed that banned doctors from prescribing opiates to addicts. Most doctors at the time would prescribe opiates to addicts, though they didn't think highly of drug abuse and actually agreed with Anslinger that these people were weak-willed. A lot of doctors viewed these people as losers that were beneath them. However, the doctors still viewed them as human and treated them as patients who were sick. And the best remedy the doctors could come up with for treating their addictions was to prescribe them the drugs they were addicted to. When these laws were passed, many doctors ignored them or interpreted them differently and kept prescribing opiates. So Harry began sending undercover agents across the country, and any doctor that wrote them a prescription for opiates was arrested. Doctors across the country, they protested. They pleaded that if their, patient, if their patients couldn't get the drugs from them, they would get them on the streets. They made the point that street drugs were far more dangerous, unpredictable, and far more expensive. They pointed out that these people have jobs and families, and that if they turn to street drugs, they risk losing the lives they have. Their families risk losing stability, and as a doctor's main goal is to help their patient, these laws prevent them from helping them the best way they know how. Everything the doctors feared would happen to their patients under these new laws is exactly what happened once they were enforced. They turned to the streets for their drugs. Their money went to the streets, funding an illegal drug trade. The mafia was the first to profit. They profited so much that there's a theory that Harry Anslinger actually was actually working for them, though there is no evidence this was ever the case. I think it was one of those cases where correlation doesn't prove causation, right? There is a correlation, but just but probably just a coincidence. Anslinger helped the underground drug trade and thus massively benefited it massively benefited the mafia, but his intentions were more ignorant than masterfully criminal. Also, the drug cartels were born. The Kingpin, the Sicario, witness protection. Even human trafficking is mostly done and carried out by drug traffickers and helped by their armed forces and money. Everything that the doctors worried would happen to their patients happened. They began scoring street opiates, mostly in the form of heroin. It was stronger, and a lot of it was cut with dangerous materials, things like even dirt and brick dust. There was no FDA monitoring of street drugs. If you injected something that resulted in loss of limb, there was no recourse. Who could you sue? The price of drugs went up a thousand percent, leading men to go bankrupt and resort to stealing and selling drugs. Women resorted to prostitution. And this sort of life led to unemployment and homelessness. Addicts would steal from their own families out of utter desperation. The addict became the person you think of today. Just watch the show Cops or Intervention to see what Anslinger's drug laws created. 
That's the American addict under drug prohibition. Before Ann Singer, Intervention wouldn't have been a very popular show. A family would have sat down with a well-dressed, well-mannered, employed person at their own home and asked them to stop taking their prescription medication. So even after the U.S. banned opiates and began arresting anyone possessing them and giving prison sentences to anyone selling them, the black market thrived. Every generation since the war on drugs began has had access to any drug they desired on the streets, and every generation has suffered from the problems of addiction under prohibition. However, something happened that supercharged opiate addiction and led us to this current opioid regulation crisis. Enter the Purdue Drug Cartel and the Sackler family, more commonly referred to as Purdue Pharma. Some of you may have seen the HBO documentary Crime of the Century. If you haven't, I recommend it. Purdue Pharma introduced Oxycontin to the market in 1996. Oxycontin is oxycodone, which is the opioid found in Percocet, but unlike Percocet, Oxycontin wasn't mixed with Tylenol. It was also prescribed in much higher doses, but with a a delayed release coating that prolonged the release of the drug into the body. It didn't take long for opiate enthusiasts and high school kids like me to figure out how to get past the slow release function by removing the outer coating and crushing them up and snorting them. Purdue went on a massive marketing campaign, branding Oxycontin as a non-addictive, highly effective pain reliever, though they had no evidence that this was not addictive. Purdue became one of the largest black market opioid providers in history. I'm going to read something from Michael Pollan's This Is Your Mind on Plants. Launched in 1996, Purdue's aggressive marketing campaign for OxyContin convinced doctors that the company's new formulation was safer and less addictive than other opiates. The company assured the medical community that pain was being undertreated and that the new opiate could benefit not just cancer and surgery patients, but people suffering from arthritis, back pain, and workplace injuries. The campaign produced an explosion in prescriptions for OxyContin that would earn the company's owner, the Sacker family, more than $35 billion, while leading to more than 233,000 deaths by overdose. But that figure grossly understates the number of casualties from OxyContin. Thousands of people who became addicted to legal painkillers eventually turned to the underground when they could no longer obtain or afford prescription opiates. Four out of five new heroin users used prescription painkillers first. They made $35 billion at the expense of how many lives? And now they're finally being punished. They are being fined $8.3 billion. This means that they get to keep $26.7 billion. And as John Oliver pointed out on his opioid crisis special, he did a few opioid specials on his HBO show last week tonight, and I do recommend them. Uh, Purdue's fine is spread out to be paid over a 10-year period, which means that they can gain interest on the money until it's paid. And so actually, once it's all paid, they'll have made it all back and then some. And the settlement includes an agreement that the individuals responsible for marketing the drug and the Sackler family will be exempt from ever facing any criminal charges. So it kind of sounds like they aren't being punished at all. 
family makes billions selling drugs and killing hundreds of thousands of people and faces no criminal charges. Person that fell victim to their Oxycontin and ended up addicted to heroin gets busted with a small amount and goes to prison. Ain't that America, you and me? So change that song from Pink Houses to uh, Steel Cages, Little Steel Cages for you and me. I remember, uh, I remember Oxycontin was everywhere when I was in high school. And I, honestly, I loved it. Most of the kids who used it, they never got addicted, but some did. You know, I have a close friend who's still addicted to opioids to this day, and it started with Oxycontin. My next-door neighbor when I was in high school, he was a few years younger than me. He died of Oxycontin, an overdose of Oxycontin, just a few years after I was out of high school. Purdue Pharma and their massive sales team misled doctors and patients and pushed their patented drug all across the country, and addiction went through the roof. Pill mills were big business down here in Florida and in many other states. Pill mills were these sketchy pain management centers where anyone who wanted opiates could go and get a prescription. Very similar to a medical marijuana doctor. Everyone knows how easy it is to get a medical marijuana card. You just say you have anxiety and you get a card. It's just a way for the state and doctors to make money while appeasing the voting base that is against recreational drugs. And that's not to say that cannabis doesn't have medicinal purpose and that it's, it's all charade so people can get high. Cannabis has tons of medical benefits. It's just that it also is a, it's a pleasant high. And people who enjoy that high can make up reasons why they need it medicinally so they can you know, use it to get high when you know, they should by all means have the freedom to obtain it for whatever purpose they want it for, honestly. So pill mills were like this, but for Oxycontin, which is more dangerous and addictive than cannabis. All anyone had to do was go into the doctor's office and say they were in pain and they got an Oxycontin prescription. These pills and the visit were not covered under insurance and people paid a lot for their prescriptions. So many addicts would get a big prescription, maybe even a few prescriptions from a few different pill mill doctors and sell what they didn't need for themselves to pay for their habit. Now, as I advocate for legal and regulated drugs for addicts, you might ask why I have a problem with pill mills. After all, this is an FDA-approved drug with its potency right on the bottle being prescribed by a doctor. Okay, first, these patients weren't being prescribed Oxycontin as opiate addicts. They were being prescribed pills under a false pretense that they needed them for pain. As an addict, a doctor would monitor their use more closely and they would be prescribed counseling along with their opiate prescription. Also, the doctors would prescribe them the drug the way that they would use it, not give them a drug meant for oral use with the delayed release coating that they would then crush up and snort. And the doctor would make sure the patients understood the dosages and overdose risk. And it wouldn't be a profit-motivated system. The drugs would ideally be covered under insurance, or at the very least, affordable. This would prevent addicts from having to sell their prescription to pay for their habits thus preventing an overflow of drugs onto the black market. However, as dangerous as these pill mills were, they were not nearly as dangerous as the black market where fentanyl exists. The U.S. got, they got tough on the so-called opioid crisis in, in uh, 2010. Pill mills started shutting down in 2010 and 2011. Purdue Pharma discontinued OxyContin. An outsider would view these things as good. But what happened to the addicts who couldn't 
Did they could no longer get their oxycotton? Did they quit using? Problem solved? No. They turned to the streets for their drugs, and as the supply of oxycotton began to dwindle, fentanyl was there to take its place. Oxycontin addicts became heroin and fentanyl addicts. Deaths from overdose rose from 21,088 in 2010 to 47,600 in 2017 to almost 70,000 in 2020. Clearly, the pill mills were safer than the streets. What the U.S. government should have done was said, anyone addicted to Oxycontin can go to their doctor and doctors should have been given legal permission to prescribe their patients Oxycontin along with counseling and a safe path to slowly decrease their dose and help them to get sober. And Purdue Pharma and other companies who profited would be required to pay for the whole program. But no, that's not what we did. We cut off the supply, offered no counseling, and sent every addict to score on the streets. And again, what was the drug waiting to fill the void? The highly more potent, addictive, and deadly drug that is the focus of the next segment. Fentanyl. From Fentanyl, Inc. by Ben Westoff. Driven by fentanyl, overdose drug deaths are, by the time of this book's publication, for the first time, killing more Americans under 55 than anything else. More than gun homicides, and more than even AIDS during the peak years of the crisis. As of 2017, Americans were statistically more likely to die from an opioid overdose than a car accident. I'm sure by now most of you have heard of fentanyl. You might have heard some of the exaggerated stories, like it's so strong that cops must wear gloves because if they were to touch even an infinitesimal amount, that it could seep through their skin and enter their blood and kill them. This notion isn't true. It cannot seep through your skin. However, a small amount of some of the stronger analogs like carfentanil can be deadly if a small amount is inhaled, like if there were dust in the air from a huge bust or a lab, but most of these claims are exaggerations. What bothers me about these exaggerated claims is that they obscure reality and spread fear, and are extremely unnecessary. The truth about fentanyl is bad enough, so why exaggerate it? So, let me share the one and only personal experience I have with fentanyl. So, I quit using Vicodin and moved back to North Carolina in 2015. I had taken some Vicodin with me to North Carolina to wean off. I had been quitting and relapsing for the last year. In North Carolina, when I ran out of what little I had brought with me, I went into mild withdrawal. Mild because this time I hadn't stopped cold turkey. I gradually weaned off. But I still didn't feel great. It wasn't extremely bad. Like my family didn't notice, and I still went to work. But I had a friend who was an opium addict. Um, and so on some days, I'd get something from him. So I wasn't completely clean yet. But he didn't have Vicodin. He, had, he didn't have a Vicodin connection. So it was usually Oxycontin which was getting harder to come by. So sometimes it was some like even harder prescription drugs like Opana, which is uh, oxymorphone. So I would get one of those pills here and there and cut it in half or sometimes thirds and make it last two or three days. Uh, often uh, he was unable to score 
So he would just spend the day feeling bad and hoped he could get it the next day. And um, one day he called me and he said, great news. I found this new stuff. It comes in nasal spray. It's cheaper and stronger than Oxy and we can get as much as we want whenever we want it. And that was the first time I'd heard the name fentanyl. The thought of a cheaper, stronger, and super available opiate scared me. I was trying to get off opiates, not addicted to a stronger one. So I opted not to try fentanyl and instead quit all opiates immediately. I had some bad days, but ultimately I got better. And now I'm five years sober from opiates. I will say this though. I still dabble here and there because I genuinely like the way they make me feel. I'm just careful not to take them for consecutive days. I use them responsibly. Right now, it's been almost three years since I've dabbled at all because they're scarce and I'm not messing with any street opiates because of the fentanyl. The last time I did them was December 2018, besides my one fentanyl encounter early the following year, which I'm about to explain. In December of 2018, my jaw was broken, I was given morphine at the hospital, and I used Percocet to treat the pain for three straight weeks. The doctor offered me one more two-week prescription with my jaw still wired shut, but I turned it down. See, I actually needed it for the pain. But after three weeks, the pain was bearable without it. So I opted to not get the prescription refilled because I knew my past addiction. Now, how, had the doctor known about my past addiction, he would never have prescribed me Percocet, and I would have suffered an immense pain because it's commonly believed that if you are a recovering addict... Recovering, the key word, they never say recovered. If you are a recovering addict, all it would take is one opiate buzz to send you right back into your addiction. This, I've found, is extremely false. Best part of having my jaw broke was getting to feel that Percocet buzz. But I knew I didn't want to develop a dependency again, so I quit using it as soon as it wasn't needed for pain. I do believe, however, that if the addict believes this to be true because that's what they've been told, then it becomes self-fulfilling. Once they've gotten that high from a substance they needed at the time for pain, but used to have a dependency to, they will believe that all hope is lost and surrender to the addiction when in fact, they could have just done what I did. Use it for pain, then stop using it. I want to say though, if, you, if you're sober and you had a dependency to an opiate or alcohol or Xanax, I'm not suggesting you should go out and use it again because if you're careful, you'll be fine. It's definitely safer to avoid a drug if you had a dependency problem with it. But I'm saying if you slip up months later and use or you get injured and they prescribe it for pain, don't think all hope is lost. Just look at it as a one-time thing and go back to sobriety. So anyway, back to fentanyl. My friend began to use it and I began my sobriety. I moved back to Florida the following year in 2016, and then in 2019, I went on a trip to, North uh, to the North Carolina mountains with some friends. One of those friends was him, who was, he was now addicted to fentanyl, and I'm keeping his name anonymous. The first night, he goes back to the room to snort a line of powder, uh, his powder fentanyl, and, um, and I went with him. I watched him snort what looked like a medium to small size line of cocaine, and I decided I wanted to try just a little, and I asked if he could spare just a super small amount. So he poured a small amount on the table, and I cut that amount in half. And I'm talking about 
a minuscule amount like a sixteenth the size of a pencil eraser. I snorted that small amount, and the rush came on immediately. I felt great for about one minute before I was so high I got sick. I began vomiting profusely, and it felt like I was about to lose consciousness. I honestly thought I was going to die. That's when I first began really worrying about my friend. I told him, I said, I had no idea how potent this stuff is. And, um, and I told him I was worried it was going to kill him. But I'm happy to say that I talked to him just the other day, and he sounded great. Sounded better than he had in a long while. He's off fentanyl and on a methadone program that's weaning him off, and he's set to be sober in January. So a real quick shout-out to my brother, who is probably going to listen to this. I love you, I'm proud of you, and you got this. You got a lot of good years ahead, my brother. Okay, so now let's talk about fentanyl and how it got here. It was first synthesized in Belgium in 1959 by Dr. Paul Janssen, and it was used for its fast-acting and powerful pain-relieving properties. It was more effective than morphine when it came to things like open-heart surgery. It's still prescribed today to cancer patients, and it's widely used in hospitals. The fentanyl that is killing most people today is not prescription fentanyl. It's fentanyl synthesized by rogue chemists and sold on the dark web and black market. And it's fentanyl analogs that are made in labs in India and China and sold to cartels. Clandestine chemists learned how to make it. It's so potent that it was an easy drug to turn a profit on because such a small amount could go such a long way. Also, this makes it easier to ship. Think shipping a kilo of heroin to get broke down and sold to a few hundred users versus shipping an ounce to get broke down and sold to a few thousand users. All right, I'm going to read again from Ben Westhoff's book, Fentanyl, Inc. Fentanyl is the most profitable drug the Mexican cartels are trafficking, wrote former U.S. State Department Special Agent Scott Stewart, an expert on the transnational criminal drug trade for the global intelligence firm Stratfor. Smuggling one kilogram of fentanyl into the United States is, from a dosage standpoint, essentially the same as smuggling in 50 kilograms of heroin. So, street chemists began making and selling it. Some of the fentanyl would end up in the heroin, and unsuspecting heroin addicts would shoot too much and die. First responders knew when it was fentanyl immediately, because the users still had the syringe in their arm. That's how fast acting it was. But where the story really gets crazy is how pharmaceutical institutions in places like India and China have started manufacturing fentanyl to be sold on the black market here in the U.S. There have been Mexican cartel arrested buying fentanyl in India. Basically, Mexico doesn't have a pharmaceutical industry, and so they import all their drugs. But India and China have these huge pharmaceutical industries that make generic drugs and sell them to the West. When you go to the pharmacy and pick up your meds, if they're not name brand, something like Xanax, but instead are the generic version, the bottle says one milligram alprazolam, those pills were manufactured someplace like India or China. So China and India have these hu- this, a huge demand for chemists to work in these labs. And a small percentage of these young chemists decide to go into production of recreational drugs because there's more money in it. Drugs like MDMA, 
LSD, and of course, fentanyl. So cartels will buy from them and then sell it on the black market. Now, let's look at China and let's start with the less nefarious, the Chinese legal system that started it. The Chinese don't have analog laws like we do here in the U.S. In the U.S., all fentanyl analogs are illegal, even if they do not yet exist. In 2019, China did finally pass fentanyl analog laws, but these laws did not include fentanyl precursors, which I'll explain shortly, and it's unclear how strict they will be enforced and followed. An analog is when you take a molecule, like a fentanyl molecule, and you change something, like adding a chlorine group, and then you have a new variation of the fentanyl molecule. So in the U.S., you can keep changing the molecule But if it's still structurally analogous to fentanyl, then it's still illegal. In China, however, they didn't have any analog laws until 2019. So let's say they banned fentanyl. A chemist modified the molecule. Then they'd have a legal fentanyl molecule. As time passed, they outlawed the analog. So the chemist modified it again, and so on and so forth. One big problem with this is that these analogs can be more dangerous than previous ones. I'm going to read again from Fentanyl, Inc. By the time police get wise to these chemicals, rogue manufacturers have already moved on to new formulas because when it comes to creating synthetic drugs, the mathematical possibilities are endless. Over the past several years, the DEA has identified hundreds of designer drugs from at least eight different drug classes, DEA Special Agent Elaine Chasery observed. There are a seemingly infinite number of possible new chemical compounds that are on the horizon. Many law enforcement officers use the same expression when describing their attempts to stop these drugs. A game of whack-a-mole. Whenever one new drug is contained, another simply pops up in its place. So, legitimate, let's say semi-legitimate labs in China could churn out huge quantities of these fentanyl analogs legally before they were violating any Chinese law. Okay, so, so far it's hard to put much blame on the Chinese government, but the story doesn't end here. There is another large part of the fentanyl industry that is actually sanctioned and subsidized by the Chinese government. The sale and shipment of fentanyl precursors, which are not covered by the new fentanyl analog laws. Precursors are the chemicals used to make fentanyl, the ingredients. Their sale is not only legal, but it's incentivized by subsidies from the Chinese government. This started as an incentive to grow their pharmaceutical chemical companies, but even when these fentanyl precursors were known to be going to cartels and clandestine labs to produce fentanyl for the black market, the Chinese government did nothing to stop it. When Donald Trump put tariffs on Chinese goods and started the trade war, the Chinese government increased their subsidies on fentanyl precursors from 9 to 10%. Kind of seems like a middle finger to the U.S., right? You want to start a trade war? Okay. Now even more deadly fentanyl will be on your streets, killing your children. Ben Westoff described this as a subversive form of warfare. 90% of all the fentanyl being sold in the black market in the U.S., comes from labs in China. I'm going to read again from his book, Fentanyl, Inc. In September 2018, 
China announced it would raise VAT rebates on about 400 different products for export, from chemicals to semiconductors, in what Reuters described as a bid to boost prospects for shipments amid its trade war with the United States. Also in 2018, the VAT rebate for fentanyl was increased from 9 to 10%. It was not one of the 400 products from the September announcement, and it is unclear when exactly in 2018 this occurred, or whether it was also in response to Trump's trade war. But the elevated rate remained in place as this book went to press. So what do we do? Go to war with China? Ben Westhoff brought up the point that what good would that do? If we won, the fentanyl manufacturing would just move to India or Singapore or Russia. What we do is legalize and regulate opioids. Which brings me to the last section, how we solve the opioid regulation crisis. But real quick before we move on to this last section of this smoke in the air episode, doesn't this thing with China make you think? The imperial nation of the time in the 19th century, Great Britain, fought two opium wars with China demanding to sell opium to the Chinese who didn't want their people addicted to it. This seems like the third opium war, right? Only this time it's the Chinese selling fentanyl to the West, and the new imperial nation that descended from Great Britain lost 93,000 people to drug overdose last year. I'm going to read again from Fentanyl Inc. The opium wars are still vivid in the Chinese public consciousness. The defeats brought shame upon the country, kicking off what Chinese call their century of humiliation, which also included the Japanese invasion and occupation of Manchuria. The opium wars particularly resonate today, with China at the center of a new international drug crisis. Now, instead of Chinese citizens hooked on an opiate supplied by Western power, the reverse is true. Westerners are hooked on drugs made in China. It's a turn of events that some commenters call the New Opium War. China has a deep visceral understanding of how an opium war can convulse a nation and collapse an empire, wrote journalist Marcos Kunalakis. Now the tables have turned. China has absorbed the century of humiliation's lessons of stealth attack and economic power and applied them globally. While it's not clear that China is purposefully enabling its chemical industry to wreak havoc abroad, the historical parallels cannot be ignored. That China takes severe measures to crack down on its own citizens' drug use, but has tacitly allowed the production of massive quantities of NPS exported around the globe is deeply ironic. Is this the third opium war? I'd say it is. So how do we win? We could go to actual war, but as I said, if we won, production would just move somewhere else, like India. Also, going to war with another nuclear power is an awful idea. So, what do we do about it? This brings us to part four of this Smoke in the Air episode. But one last thing before we move on, I must say that there is a lot of evidence also to show that China is fighting the manufacture of fentanyl and has made many busts and passed many laws to curb its production. It's just hard to know how much they are actually doing because their media is state-run. There may be less nefarious government intent, or there may be more. It's hard to know. So, 
One last thing in this section I'll read from Fentanyl Inc. There is little doubt that China is undercutting its publicly stated goal of stopping the export of dangerous drugs for illicit use. That's because the country actively encourages the export of fentanyls and fentanyl precursors, and even synthetic cannabinoids, through its tax code and high-tech subsidies. Further, it has been ineffective at ensuring such exports don't end up in the wrong hands. If China had a subsidy on lead, you'd probably see a lot more bullets coming out of China, and that's what's happening here with the precursors. They're just subsidizing whatever is a high-value commodity, and in this case, it just happens to be really potent synthetic opioids or opioid precursors, said Rand's Bryce Pardo. The Chinese government doesn't have a good capacity for regulating its own industry. At the same time, it wants to export and make as much money as possible. They're getting ahead of themselves and causing a lot of harm in the process. What's unclear is if China realizes its policies spur the international drug trade. As with many of Chinese policies, the aid in fentanyl's export is myopic, said Justin Hastings, an associate professor of international relations and comparative politics at the University of Sydney, whose areas of expertise include China and drug trafficking. He speculates that these policies were developed to encourage chemicals and industries deemed important to the country's national development. It's also a lackadaisical approach to enforcement of Chinese companies' behavior outside of China and in doing business with foreign companies that are not explicitly on sanctions lists. He went on adding that some genuine corruption of Chinese officials may be at play as well. So, as I said, it's hard to know what's at play with the Chinese government. And um, one last point that Ben Westhoff makes is, and those quick to blame China should bear in mind that the American government doesn't have its hands clean. Decades of war on drugs practices have failed to promote policies experts believe will help addicted users break their habits, all while resulting in the needless incarceration of generations of nonviolent offenders. So, on to part four. What are the solutions? I know I've already discussed many of the things we need to do. Legalize, regulate, prescribe opiates to addicts, shut down the black market this way. But I want to go into a little more detail and explain how other countries are solving the problem and how the U.S. could follow their lead and do the same. problem with America is, we don't like to follow anyone else's lead. We have this big ego in this country where things that are not our idea, we don't tend to recognize as good ideas. Also in this last section, I want to discuss what we can do to help addicts now, before laws change. Because waiting on the U.S. government to make these changes could take years, if it ever happens at all and hundreds of thousands of lives will be lost in the meantime. So I'm going to start this fourth section by explaining what we should do as a country, and then I'm going to get into ways we can help addicts right now, and things addicts can do to try and save themselves. So the first thing we need to do immediately, before any legislation will pass, before any political candidate will have the guts to come out pro-legalization, we must, as a society, 
shed our current views of addiction. We must move from the drugs are evil, addicts are criminals paradigm and into a new, more compassionate paradigm. We must stop thinking of addicts as losers, lazy people who would rather get high than get a job, or that they are somehow evil. They're crooks and they're never to be trusted. Society views addiction this way for several reasons. One major reason is the way addiction is portrayed in television. Extremely popular shows like Breaking Bad. I'd like to read an excerpt from Dr. Carl Hart's book, Drug Use from Grownups. And who hasn't seen the popular U.S. television show Breaking Bad? Brian Cranston, the lead actor, plays a high school chemistry teacher turned methamphetamine manufacturer and dealer. Apparently, playing a meth dealer on TV is enough to make you an expert on the drug and addiction to it. At least that's the perspective viewers of The Daily Show were left with after an appearance by Cranston back in 2010. Meth is such a horrible drug, Cranston spouted to the then-host Jon Stewart. In part, the actor explained, because it makes users continually pick at their skin in search of imaginary bugs crawling underneath. It took a great deal of inhibitory control for me to continue watching, but I did because Cranston wasn't done. He had a neurochemical explanation for why people become addicted to methamphetamine. In the beginning, he confidently asserted, your brain is producing dopamine along with the drug, which creates the most euphoric high. Users get hooked, he explained, because after a couple of uses, the drug fails to produce euphoria, and then users are only left with their addiction. Stewart, known for his quick, sharp wit and ability to ask, tough, probing questions, let these claims go unchallenged. These type of distortions neither prevent nor decrease the use of the drug, nor do they provide any real facts about the effects of methamphetamine. They succeed only in perpetuating false assumptions. What's worse is that this sanctioned public dissemination of ignorance is not limited to methamphetamine. The same educational strategy is used to inform the public about other drugs as well. And it's not just shows about drugs. Like, there's all these other sitcoms people watch. I remember the episode of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, where Will Smith and Carlton go out, and I believe Carlton took a bunch of speed and was dancing like crazy. So there's always these bad drug things that happen in these sitcoms. Almost any sitcom you name, you're going to find an episode where somebody was on drugs or they found out their friend was doing them. And it was always a negative story, but that ended with a positive message of you know, not doing drugs. So these things influence our culture. And then there's the the awful so-called reality shows like Cops and Intervention. These shows are pure propaganda. They show people the worst cases of what addiction looks like under prohibition. Keywords, under prohibition and worse cases. But people watch these junk television programs and feel informed. They see a meth addict in handcuffs after holding up a liquor store, and they feel like they understand drug addiction. They don't even understand what methamphetamine is, that it's actually a prescribed medication for some disorders, that it's almost structurally identical to Adderall. They don't understand that the picture of addiction that's being painted for them is the picture of addiction under prohibition. 
a life of buying drugs from sketchy people on a black market. You know the expression, can't see the forest for the trees? Those shows show people one pine tree, and people think they understand all the complexities of the Amazon. And the pine tree that they were shown was a fake one decorated with lights in their own living room. Another hurdle that many addicts face under prohibition is jail. Jail comes with being humiliated. They're degraded, bound in metal handcuffs, placed in a steel cage like a rat, and now they have an arrest record. So even when they get out, if they're able to get sober and after getting past the trauma of being arrested, their job prospects are limited because they have a criminal record. Also, The places they want to live become limited because a lot of landlords won't rent to someone with a criminal record. I remember a few years ago, I paid a $150 application fee for an apartment, and I got denied because of one misdemeanor pot possession charge that happened 20 years ago. They wouldn't refund the $150. I was furious. They said that they had a strict zero-tolerance policy for any drug charge. I said, maybe if one single pot possession charge is disqualifying, then you could have asked me if I'd ever had a a drug charge before you took my money and wasted my time. And I had my medical marijuana card at the time too. I was being denied an apartment because of a past possession charge of something that wasn't even illegal anymore. So anyway, this kind of television that perpetuates these negative stereotypes of addiction are forms of propaganda for the war on drugs. Another reason we have these skewed views of addiction is that on the surface, a lot of these stereotypes appear to be true. So let's discuss the reasons why. They'd rather get high than get a job. Okay, well, why did they start using in the first place? As Viktor Frankl wrote in Man's Search for Meaning, if you're having trouble finding compassion for someone, imagine them as a child. Most addicts start using at a young age. My drug use started when I was 13. What are the reasons children turn to drugs? There are myriad reasons, such as peer pressure, to impress someone they have a crush on, to have a new experience. But a common reason is childhood trauma. So let's put this in context with a fictional story based on a common scenario. Let's call our character Tom. Tom has a wonderful, normal childhood up until he's about 12 years old. That's when his parents start fighting and yelling and throwing things around the house. And then, soon after the fighting starts, his parents sit him down to inform him what he already feared. They're getting a divorce. And not only that, but he must decide which parent he's going to live with. He begins to feel like their divorce was his fault. He feels he broke his mother's heart when he picked his dad, but he and his dad were really close. Only now... His dad and him are growing apart because his dad stays out late every night drinking, trying to meet women. At 13 years old, at home, bored and sad, he finds his dad's liquor stash and gets drunk. This, he finds, makes him feel a whole lot better. At school, he finds other kids, some a little older, who also like to drink and party. He starts experimenting with some prescription meds like Xanax and codeine. And then when he's 16, he tries Oxycontin. It immediately becomes his favorite high. He loves it and begins using it all the time until one day his dealer runs out and he realizes he's getting sick. He realizes he has a physical dependence on the drug. 
He ends up finding some and he immediately feels better. But street prices are high at a dollar a milligram and his tolerance is building. He manages to get through high school, but not with a a spectacular GPA. And so he decides not to go to college. Instead, he gets a job to support his Oxycontin habit. His tolerance is about three 20 milligram tablets a day, a $60 a day habit, which is more than he makes. So he starts selling pills to support his habit. He likes his job bussing tables at Outback. He likes it all right. He gets promoted to server. Now he's making almost $100 a shift, but he's up to 100 milligrams a day, so he still sells. Eventually, he makes the mistake of selling to an undercover officer. Now, how they do this is they buy one or two pills, but they don't make an arrest. A few days later, they hit him up for a few more. They do this for a few weeks, and then they bust him for selling. The charge is felony distribution because on paper, it wasn't just a few pills he was selling. It was all the pills he sold as if it was one big sale. The charge comes with a mandatory 10-year sentence. He ends up serving two years of the 10-year sentence. He was able to feed his addiction in prison, but not with Oxycontin because it was scarce and expensive. He was now using heroin. He gets out of prison at 23 years old and gets a job at Olive Garden waiting tables and decides that he doesn't want to live like this anymore. He goes to the methadone clinic and gets off heroin. He decides he's ready to go to college and applies for a student loan. He's denied because he's a felon. Okay, so college is out. So he decides he'll look for a better job, make the America dream happen the old-fashioned way, work hard for a good company, and move up through the ranks. He applies at CarMax. Three interviews, background check, no job. He applies at FedEx, UPS, Walmart, Target. Interviews, background checks, no job offers. So just when he was about to give up, score some heroin, and relapse, the Olive Garden that he waits tables at offers him a management position, Why didn't he think about that himself? It was literally right there under his feet. He tells the GM that he is definitely interested in the management position. His GM says, great, I think you'll make an excellent addition to the team, Tom. He hands Tom the management application. Tom flips over the application to see where it says, have you ever been convicted of a felony? This is when reality sinks in. Tom sees now that there is an extremely low ceiling on how successful he will be in his lifetime. He relapses, starts messing up at work, and soon after he's fired. A series of odd jobs eventually becomes no job. Now with no job and an expensive heroin addiction, he begins stealing from small businesses and friends and family. His parents cut off contact with him after he calls them from jail for bail money after being arrested for larceny. At 35 years old, he is homeless, He holds up a cardboard sign asking for money on the side of the road, and he sleeps under the bridge. The mornings he can't afford heroin, you can see him waiting in line outside the methadone clinic. Addicts who still have it together and have health insurance can go to their doctor and get methadone. But people like Tom, they must wait in line outside the clinic, where all the people driving to work can see them and judge them. So, people like Tom... And not the Tom that was addicted to Oxycontin, but still holding a job and even getting promoted from busboy to server. 
They see Tom after he's been chewed up and spit out. That's the Tom that is the face of addiction that America sees. The person who was an addict but fortunate enough not to get a criminal record and was able to get off street drugs and onto methadone and go to college now works for a law office. They still take methadone and sometimes they still use heroin because that's the drug they really crave. No one sees that person. They see Tom, the lazy, drug-using bum who would rather get high than get a job. So the first thing we need to do as a society is move away from this no-tolerance, no-love, you-got-yourself-there-get-yourself-out mentality. It's like the addict fell in a hole, and we're standing over him with our foot against his neck, telling him that he fell in, so he needs to climb out. And we just keep our boot tight on his neck and keep asking him, why aren't you climbing out? What's taking you so long? He says, because you won't take your boot off my neck. I'm trying. Oh, you always have an excuse, don't you, Tom? We need to move away from thinking about addiction the way we have been and take a much more empathetic approach. The shift is slowly happening with states like Oregon decriminalizing drugs, but it's not happening nearly fast enough. We need to stop listening to the drug warmongers and the propaganda. Treating addiction as a crime will never work. We spend between 40 and $80 billion every year fighting the drug war and have more street drugs and overdose deaths than ever. What do you think one of these drug war agents, like a DEA agent, would say about that? They'd probably say that they just need to fight a little harder and they need a little more money to do so. That's what they've said every year in every administration on the right and the left for the political reason of not appearing weak on crime has given into the drug war machine's demands, adding more money to their budgets, and every year the drug problem gets worse. Is there a number we could spend ever where we might actually see a decrease in drugs on our streets? And if so, what's the number? Is it $100 billion a year? $300 billion? A trillion? And for what? So people can't get high? And at what cost? Where would that money come from? The defense budget? The education budget? The transportation budget? Is it worth taking billions of dollars from the federal budget to try and stop adults from using a drug that they want to use? You could point to the 93,000 overdose deaths and then I'll point to the almost zero overdose deaths in countries that allow legal access to opiates. This brings us to what other countries are doing. There are so many aspects about what other countries have done and are doing that I'll only be able to cover certain aspects. I'd like to start with some things that, uh, some things that nonprofits are doing and how some countries have embraced their causes and other countries most notably the U.S., have not. Dance Safe and the Bunk Police are two of the big names in the fight for drug safety. These groups are committed to safe drug use, and they offer tests that will test your drugs before you use them so you know what you're about to ingest. Dance Safe sets up tents at music festivals and raves and offers a safe space for people having bad trips. And you can bring them drugs that you've purchased, and they will test them right there and let you know what's in them. If you bought what you thought was LSD and it turned out to be N-bomb, then you could make an informed decision to either not take it or take less of it as N-bomb, though it 
isn't dangerous for most users. It can be stronger than LSD, and it can be lethal to a small percentage of those who take it, whereas LSD cannot. You can take them to an ecstasy, you know, take them an ecstasy pill, find out if you have MDMA or an analog, or maybe it's cut with heroin or cocaine, which a lot are, or maybe it's cut with fentanyl and could be potentially lethal. These testing sites are invaluable tools for safety at these festivals, and they've saved countless lives. Places that have decriminalized drugs like Spain and Portugal have had amazing results from these tests. I'm going to read from Fentanyl Inc. In Europe, a number of groups are doing cutting-edge work in harm reduction, including the Netherlands' Drug Information and Monitoring System, Switzerland's Safer Nightlife, and the Austrian organization Check It, which boasts some of the most sophisticated drug-checking technology in the world. These programs provide a wide variety of services, including educating users about new drugs, providing clean needles, contraception, water, and other safety supplies, and sending out updates about adulterated drugs being sold locally, often in real time. Spain in particular stands out for its creative forward-thinking measures to stop drug overdoses, which combine government efforts with private ones. For instance, a Spanish harm reduction group called Energy Control is allowed to order new drugs from vendors on the dark web for the purposes of analyzing them and understanding their potential to cause problems. In fact, when Adam Ochter and Bunk Police need to confirm that their sample of a new drug from China is pure, they send it to Energy Control. Energy Control is the best in the world, according to Ochter. They're what Dance Safe could be if they didn't have all kinds of regulations covering them. Another amazing aspect of all the testing that's being done at festivals in Europe is that they are seeing a huge reemergence of pure drugs like MDMA and LSD and even heroin, all of which are safer than the synthetic chemicals being sold under their names. The reason for these chemicals reemerging is simple. In places where people have their drugs tested, they won't take the synthetic substitutes, and because drug dealers want to make money, they get the customer the product that they want. But in places where testing is mostly unavailable, like the U.S., they can keep selling the cheaper synthetics because the customer has no way of knowing. Now, I've said time and time again that decriminalization is only a starting point, and I call for the legalization and regulation of all drugs. But if decriminalization is the best we can get, and it were to work here in the U.S. the way it works in Spain, then I'll be happy. Small-time drug dealers, like the, the guy that I buy my DMT from, he wouldn't be subject to arrest, and neither would users. Drug testing facilities could ensure that we have pure drugs. And we could go to festivals without worrying about arrest or overdose. All of that would be great. It still leaves the profits in the hands of the black market, thus not solving the cartel problem and the drug gang problem. Also, the government still would receive no tax revenue, which could be great to fund safe drug education, addiction treatment, and rehabilitation centers. So again, I am ultimately for legalizing and regulation, but decriminalization, which Oregon just did, would be a great first step. For starters, it would allow more testing to be available for users. Dance Safe was forced to leave the Electric Forest Music Festival in Michigan, and the bunk police were banned as well. And it wasn't the police that did this. It was the festival organizers. 
And it's not that they don't support the efforts of Dance Safe, it's that they don't want to get into any legal trouble. I'm going to read something from Fentanyl Inc. Electric Forest issue with Dance Safe was likely owing to a federal law called the Illicit Drug Anti-Proliferation Act, usually referred to as the Rave Act. Though the law was intended to curb the abuse of ecstasy and other drugs, it alarmed companies like Insomniac, America's biggest rave promoter, which puts on Electric Forest with a company called Madison House Presents. Because the Rave Act made it a crime for concert organizers to host events where controlled substances are knowingly used or sold. The law was passed in 2003 at a time when American interest in electronic dance music was small. But as the scene grew, companies became increasingly paranoid. As a result, Insomniac and other promoters often banned groups like Dance Safe from selling drug checking kits at their events. They feared this would amount to admitting substance abuse takes place on their grounds and thereby make them criminally liable. Promoters feel their hands are tied due to the Rave Act, said Dance Safer's Emmanuel Spherius, adding that he believes this feeling is misplaced since the act has not led to prosecutions in many years. So decriminalizing drugs would make it safe for organizers to allow for testing because the people would be using drugs inside the law. So I think when we look at other countries' handling of drugs, it provides a roadmap of where we should be heading. In the U.S., where drug laws are strict and even simple possession is an arrestable crime, addiction, drug violence, and overdose is rampant. In places where drugs have been decriminalized, like Spain and Portugal and Slovenia, and places like Switzerland, where heroin addicts have access to legal heroin, addiction, drug violence, and overdose deaths have plummeted. Now, to play devil's advocate, we could also look at countries with far stricter drug laws than the U.S., and countries in Asia where they have lower rates of drug problems and very little overdose. Places like Malaysia, where drug dealers are executed and the punishment for simple possession can mean up to 10 years in prison. I guess we could look at them on the roadmap, too. So, let me ask you, to get drug violence and addiction and drug overdose deaths down, which direction do you think we should go? Stricter? President Trump commended China for executing drug traffickers. He said, states with a very powerful death penalty on drug dealers don't have a drug problem. Is that where we should go? Execute drug dealers and enforce enormous penalties on those who possess even a small amount of drugs? It might work. Sure, we'll lock up and execute a bunch of nonviolent people in the process, but eventually the people will learn. What will they learn? That Uncle Sam knows what's best for you and will decide what you can put in your own body. Thanks, big brother. We could move into an Orwell novel, and it would probably eventually create a decrease in drug use. Or we could go in the direction of Spain and allow adults to make decisions about drug use for themselves. And with this strategy, we can offer good advice and support for those who want to experiment with drugs which, by the way, is almost everyone. If my legalized drug platform scares you because you're scared that your children will use drugs, think about this. I grew up in a country with strict drug laws. All the outlawed drugs were available for my purchase, and the dealers did not care how old I was. People I grew up with died. I was arrested and have a permanent drug record, and I've had it since I was 18 years old. 
If you don't want legal drugs because you're worried about your children, let me ask you, what is it you're afraid of? Overdose? Addiction? Death? Violence? All of these things are what drug use looks like under prohibition, not in places that have decriminalized. If your, ch- if your child chooses to use, I hope they're in a country that is tolerant. Because if not, then they will be buying on the black market where there is no regulation. If they are looking for Percocet, they may get a lethal dose of fentanyl. Also, while at a dealer's house, they risk assault as robberies are much more common in drug houses than legal dispensaries. Maybe you're a proponent for abstinence and you don't want your child to experiment at all. You support stricter laws like Malaysia. Okay, well better hope your child follows that law. Because under these laws, addiction and overdose are now the least of your child's problems if they decide to use. Better hope they don't get 10 years of prison for possession or get talked into delivering a package for some quick cash and end up getting executed by a firing squad because the package was a kilo of heroin. So clearly, I take the side of legalization, not stricter, harsher laws. I know, as Americans, that we hate to admit that another country is doing something better than us, but that is so childish. We need to look at these countries and see what is working and figure out what we can learn from them. We have a huge problem in this country, and it's time we took action and demanded change. So the first thing we need to do is change public opinion about drug use and drug addiction. This change in opinion would allow our politicians to change drug policy without risking their careers. It could actually help their careers. And that is the next step. After after public opinion changes, political action needs to happen. As Johan Hari explained in his book, Chasing the Scream, we already have a drug distribution network in place. A drug like cannabis gets sold and regulated the way tobacco and alcohol are sold and regulated. Many states are are already doing this. And harder or so-called harder drugs, you know, I, I argue that alcohol is a hard drug. But anyway, drugs like cocaine and methamphetamine and heroin can be sold in pharmacies. If you have an addiction or feel you really need these drugs, you could go to a specialist who would be a doctor or psychiatrist and explain why you need them. If the doctor feels you need them, then they could write you a prescription. And with that, you would also get weekly or monthly counseling if the doctor felt you needed it. They could try and help addicts get off drugs while they prescribed a safe dose of the drug in the meantime. And the counseling should have no strings attached. As I said earlier, a lot of people use because of childhood trauma, but others use to self-medicate conditions like bipolar and schizophrenia In heroin, they find more soothing and relieving than antipsychotic meds. So why can't they take heroin? And this isn't to say that I don't think heroin is dangerous. It can be. A wrong dose can kill you. It doesn't have to contain fentanyl to be lethal. It also can cause dependence, which can lead to horrible withdrawals. I myself, I've went through opiate withdrawals and it was not fun. But consider that I was able to get clean without any professional help. Also, everything I just said about the dangers of heroin, that it's addictive and can be deadly, can lead to withdrawals, all of that is true about alcohol. The two big differences are that while heroin withdrawals can be dreadful, they aren't deadly. Alcohol withdrawals can be deadly. Also, 
Someone high on heroin is much less likely to become violent than someone under the influence of alcohol. Like I said, I don't think heroin is benign and should be an easily accessible drug like alcohol is, but I don't think many people would vote to make alcohol harder to get, and this is a double standard. And I guess I'm guilty of it too. I don't advocate for stricter alcohol laws, and I'm also not advocating for heroin to be as easily accessible as alcohol. It's a tough conundrum. I think one thing I'd change about alcohol is I'd outlaw the advertising of it, like we did with cigarettes. Still keep it available for adults to purchase at stores and restaurants, but remove the sexiness from the product. Alcohol has become so popular in our culture that people look down on people who don't drink alcohol, which is ridiculous. Anyway, those are the ways I would... I think we should fix the problem, change public opinion about drug use and addiction, and then legalize and regulate drugs. But changing Americans' opinions on these things could take years, and then getting our politicians to pass legislation could take even longer. So how do we help addicts today? If you're an addict or drug user, even a cocaine user, you should buy rapid fentanyl test kits so you can test your drugs for fentanyl. There was a, a, there's been a rise in fentanyl in all sorts of street drugs, not just opiates. For example, there's been a rise in deaths at raves. The government says, we're not allowed to take ecstasy and dance. I don't know why. MDMA, which is the chemical that's supposed to be the main, if not only ingredient in ecstasy, and it's supposed to be the only ingredient in molly, is very safe in comparison with other drugs, like alcohol. But it is illegal so people who enjoy its effects and choose to do it are forced to buy it on the black market. And a lot of these ecstasy and molly pills on the black market now contain fentanyl. And this is the reason people are now dying at raves. So I recommend buying rapid fentanyl test strips. I looked at Amazon earlier, and you could buy a 25-pack of them for 30 bucks. And so that's one thing I recommend. Another thing I'd recommend you have on hand if you or someone you love is an addict is... Narcan, it's, uh, that's the brand name for naloxone. Naloxone is a nasal spray that immediately reverses the effects of an opiate. So if, someone, if someone's overdosing, even if they're on the verge of death, it will bring them back immediately. So you can look into it at narcan.com. On their website, it says that you can get Narcan from any pharmacy and you do not have to have a prescription. It is really sad that this is the best we can do. Test street drugs for potentially deadly substances and keep Narcan in the, in the medical cabinet because Uncle Sam doesn't want us getting high, so addicts are using unregulated street drugs. So the last thing I'd like to suggest, and this is by far the most obvious and hardest to do, is try and get off street drugs. Try and get help. The methadone clinic is a good place to start because unfortunately that's the only thing this country offers to opiate addicts. And of course I'm including Suboxone and Subutex in the methadone clinic suggestion. These are drugs that help with withdrawal and that you can wean off. Though I know it's not easy and heroin or Oxycontin would be better. But they're too enjoyable and the government hates when people enjoy a good high for some weird, probably puritanical and possibly sadistic reason. I don't know. Getting off the drugs alone won't be enough. So start exercising, get on a healthy diet, try meditation, Therapy, yoga, you need to find happiness if you want to beat an addiction. And I know I sound like those Colorado doctors telling people to try yoga instead of using opiates for their pain, but actually, I don't find those doctors completely wrong. 
If, if you suffer from chronic pain, you should seek out healthy alternatives. But if the pain medication is working, it, it should ultimately be your choice. Seriously, though, if you, have, if you have an addiction, try changing your diet and exercise routine. Try and live as healthily as possible and try to wean off the drugs. Also, and I'm sure every opiate addict and opiate enthusiast already knows about it, but Kratom is a highly effective, safe, and non-morphine opiate that will curb withdrawals. It's not as addictive and not, it's not lethal at all. And it's legal, at least for now. The FDA is now trying to ban it after the DEA failed to do so, as if the FDA doesn't have anything more important to be doing right now with COVID vaccines and everything. So if you're listening to this and you're an addict, my first and most obvious advice is to try and get clean and find happiness. It won't be easy, but I promise it is possible. Use Kratom to soften the blow or go to a methadone clinic and wean off. You know, at least methadone is a regulated dose. If you have the money to travel, look up Ibogaine. Unfortunately, Ibogaine is illegal in the U.S., but they do have Ibogaine treatment for addiction in other countries. Mexico is one of those countries. Ibogaine is an extremely powerful psychedelic plant. People who take it, uh, who have opiate addictions, have high success rates of, of recovery. And how I understand it to work, not from experience, but from researching it, uh, is that the experience not only shows you your life from an outside perspective that makes you want to quit using, but it actually rewires the brain in a way that after the experience, you can quit cold turkey and you will have minimal withdrawals. Again, unfortunately, here in the land of the free, this treatment is illegal. You are not free to do it. You'd have to go to Mexico or Amsterdam or another country that offers it. I know the advice to get clean is obvious, but if you're an addict, it's the best advice there is. Try and get off street drugs because there is no real safe way to use them. If you're going to risk use them, buy the rapid fentanyl test strips. And if you or someone you love is an addict, go to your pharmacy and pick up Narcan. And most importantly, the first thing we all must do is stop viewing addiction as a crime. Let's start having empathy for addicts. This includes you if you're an addict. Have some empathy for yourself. Show yourself some mercy. Forgiving yourself might be your first step to recovery. And peaceniks, let's all be vocal about this. How many more dollars should we spend on this ridiculous drug war? How many more thousands of people will have to die before we wake up and realize that there is a solution? Other countries are solving this. Why aren't we? I hope this podcast helped illuminate what exactly is going on with what the media is calling the opioid crisis. Remember, it's an opioid regulation crisis. Thanks for listening. I'm going to read one more excerpt from Michael Pollan's wonderful book, This Is Your Mind on Plants. Until this century, hard cider was probably the most popular intoxicant, drug if you will, in this country. It shouldn't surprise us that one of the symbols of the Women's Christian Temperance Union was an axe. Prohibitionists like Carrie Nation used to call for the chopping down of apple trees, just like the one in my garden. Plants that in their eyes held some of the same menace that a marijuana plant or a poppy flower holds in the eyes of, say, drug czar William Bennett. It's worth noting that during the period of anti-alcohol hysteria that led to prohibition, 
Certain forms of opium were as legal and almost as widely available in this country as alcohol is today. It is said that members of the Women's Christian Temperance Union would relax at the end of a day spent crusading against alcohol with their cherished women's tonics, preparations whose active ingredient was laudanum, opium. Such was the order of things less than a century ago. The war on drugs is in truth a war on some drugs. Their enemy status the result of historical accident, cultural prejudice, and institutional imperative. The taxonomy on behalf of which the war is being fought would be difficult to explain to an extraterrestrial. Is it the quality of addictiveness that renders a substance illicit? Not in the case of tobacco, which I am free to grow in this garden. Curiously, the current campaign against tobacco dwells less on cigarettes' addictiveness than on their threat to our health. So is it toxicity that renders a substance a public menace? Well, my garden is full of plants, datura and euphorbia, castor beans, and even the leaves of my rhubarb that would sicken and possibly kill me if I ingested them. But the government trusts me to be careful. Is it then the prospect of pleasure, of recreational use, that puts the substance beyond the pale? Not in the case of alcohol. I can legally produce wine or hard cider or beer from my garden for my personal use, though there are regulations governing its distribution to others. So could it be a drug's mind-altering properties that make it evil? Certainly not in the case of Prozac, a drug that, much like opium, mimics chemical compounds manufactured in the brain. Arbitrary though the war on drugs may be, the battle against the poppy is surely its most eccentric front. The exact same chemical compounds in other hands, those of a pharmaceutical company, say or a doctor, are treated as the boon to mankind they most surely are. Yet although the medical value of my poppies is widely recognized, my failure to heed what amounts to a set of regulations that only a pharmaceutical company may handle these flowers, that only a doctor may dispense their extracts, and prejudices that refined alkaloids are superior to crude ones. Governing their production and use makes me not just a scofflaw, but a felon. Someday we may marvel at the power we've invested in these categories, which seems out of all proportion to their artifice. Perhaps one day the government won't care if I want to make a cup of poppy tea for a migraine, no more than it presently cares if I make a cup of valerian tea to help me sleep, or if I want to make a quart of hard apple cider for the express purpose of getting drunk. After all, it wasn't such a long time ago that the fortunes of the apple and the poppy in this country were reversed. Again, thank you so much for listening to this Smoke in the Air episode, Opioid Crisis. I really hope it sheds some light on our current situation where we have almost 100,000 people overdose in a single year in this country. We have to do more. We have to speak up about this. We have to talk about this. So let's all make sure that we are vocal on this issue. Thanks for listening. Peace, Peace out. out. Peace out.